Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And uh, today we're diving deep into training, which means we should probably suggest you go download something for free based on training. Well, this is a part two. This is a part two. Yep. Still. What? We should still recommend something Absolutely. that they should download. Last time yeah, we talked guide. about the program design uh, webinar. Uh, today we'll talk about the physique guide. The physique guide is a training manual. It does have a program inside of it that you would get for free. Um, it is a training manual specifically to teach you how to program for yourself, how to effectively work out, how to effectively train to build muscle, to change your body composition as a gen pop individual. So somebody who's not necessarily competing in anything, but you want to create your best physique possible. So it's taking the science of bodybuilding and it's applying it in a more uh, practical and applicable way for everyday people who just want to get jacked or lean or look really good. So go check that out. You can head to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash guides, or you can click the direct link in the description of this podcast and it'll take you right to the actual manual and it's yours completely free. Hell yeah. So let's dive into, uh, what I've changed my thoughts on part two. Yeah, I just wanted to apologize for my hoarse voice. I got married this past weekend, and I was screaming at the top of my lungs for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Let, let's go. <laughs> yeah, it was a great time, man. It was. A um, lot of singing, a lot of dancing, <clears throat> um, a lot of tears. I'm paying for it right now. Yeah, you, you sound horrible. Yeah. Or really, really fucking sexy. I guess it depends who's, <laughs> who's, who's listening to it. a movie or something? Yeah. <clears throat> so, all right, let's get into it, guys. We got uh, training opinions, uh, part two, what Cody has changed his mind about. And we are going to start with programming outweighs effort. Yeah, so this one, like, I think basically in the last, I mean, RPE was studied and researched, uh, I don't know how long ago, uh, as an endurance, as a, a way to measure uh, endurance effort. And basically, it was a way of saying, how how hard should you be running, right, to to manage your pace. So people literally use it as a way to manage their pace to predict and accomplish times on a race of a marathon, half marathon, Ironman, whatever it may be. Um, and I can't remember. I think it was like 7 through 20. It was something random like that, 7 through 30 or 7 through 20, like the scale. So it was later on adapted. Is it uh, RPE? Yeah, RPE scale, rate of perceived exertion. But it was later on adapted for powerlifting, um, I believe by Mike Toucher. Uh, It was really well known for powerlifting. Even if he wasn't the exact one, he is extremely well known for powerlifting. But I'm pretty sure he was the one that did it. Um, And what he did is he made it 1 through 10. Mm. And it's basically a way of of scaling, essentially, your effort, right? How hard are you going relative to max failure? So, um, when you are training, we have a certain proximity we should be going to failure for, right? Um, and this is the same thing as RIR. RIR is the inverse. So the inverse would be reps in reserve. So if you have an eight RPE, then you have a two RIR and reps in reserve was later on designed more so for bodybuilding. And I think it's, I think it's great. I think, uh, it's, it's a good way to gauge essentially, how many reps you have left in the tank, which is the same exact thing as RPE. It's, it's your proximity to failure, but it's a little bit easier for a lot of people to understand because if I say eight RPE, it's the same thing as go like 80% of your maximum effort. There we go. It's very hard for a lot of people to contextualize and, and understand what is 80% of my max effort. Or accurately. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's very just like, you're just kind of guessing until you get really, really good. Now, if you're doing 10 reps, it's a lot easier to do RPE, or I'm sorry, if you're doing eight reps, it's really 
easy to predict your your eight rep RPE because you can say, okay, what's my 10 rep max? I'm going to do eight reps with it because I'm leaving two reps in the tank, totally. right? Um, hence RIR. So RIR is a little bit easier to understand, but the point is, is this whole idea is a lot of research di- diving into how hard are you going in your training? Every set, every rep, how far from failure are you going? What's the proximity to failure in that? And the reason that's important is because they've done countless studies on intensities and rep ranges and, and amounts of sets per week per muscle group, right? Total volume. And what they've realized is that you can build muscle in the three to five rep range. You can build muscle in the five to 10 rep range. You can build muscle in the 10 to 20, the 20 to 30. It ultimately comes down to your percentage of uh, one rep max or your perceived effort towards failure. And so they start to see diminishing returns when you go below 60% of one rep max, I believe. And that's where you're doing like 40 reps with a thing. And at that point, you're just, it's muscle endurance. You're creating a lot of lactate, which technically has a relation to muscle growth, but it just becomes way less productive. So staying 60 to 65% or higher means that you're basically doing anything from one to fucking 20 reps, 25 reps, Um, which means, again, we can do any type of rep range or intensity and still build muscle and still make progress to an extent because you're still training the muscle. You're still creating a stress response. Um, But what this essentially means is like there's no perfect programming strategy. So a lot of times in the past, it would be like, well, if you want to build muscle, you got to stay in the eight to 12 rep range. Now, the 8 to 12 rep range is known as the hypertrophy zone uh, from old textbooks. It's been debunked because they have studies going, okay, these guys are doing sets of three. These guys are doing sets of eight. There's no difference in muscle growth or strength as long. I wouldn't say strength, muscle growth, as long as total volume is equated. So you might be doing three sets of eight versus six sets of three, but no matter what, the total tonnage moved at the end of the session needs to be the same. Um, So that kind of debunks the whole rep range zone. Um, They've also had studies that show muscle growth from five sets per muscle group, 10 sets per muscle group, 15 sets per muscle group. Usually it's more volume is better, but there's a lot of ways to accomplish volume. Um, There's a lot of experience and research, not necessarily on exercise selection, but research that would let us believe this theory of exercise selection almost doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because as long as you're stimulating muscle, I don't give a shit if you're doing a split squat or a Bulgarian split squat or a reverse lunge or a leg extension or a squat if you're creating a stimulus on the quadricep muscle and you're doing enough volume, you're going to grow. So exercise selection kind of becomes less important than effort because as long as I'm doing an exercise where you feel the muscle and like you feel like it works, Mm -hmm. you know, so that becomes less important. So there's no fancy, perfect exercise. There's no fancy, perfect rep range. There's no perfect training split because they've done bro splits and, uh, and, uh, like uh, upper lower splits and full body splits and push pull leg splits, which is, one times a week frequency, two times a week frequency, three, four times a week frequency, volume equated, doesn't matter. Ultimately, what it all boils down to is are you doing enough and working hard enough, right? So there was so much talk back in the day, and I did it too, about full body is the best way to train, upper lower is the best way to train. And the only way you can say that is if you're talking about one specific individual. So I may think upper lower is best for this specific individual, but it's not because it's scientifically proven. It's because I think that's what they're going to enjoy and adhere to best, right? And that's going to allow them to consistently work hard in the gym. Everything boils down to RPE and RIR, the effort you are putting forward. So I think that ultimately what this whole thing is, is there's no programming tricks that can uh, get you out of working your ass off. Kind of like there's no, there's no dietary secret that can help you work around calories in versus calories out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, you're going to say something? Well, I just was thinking, I know you said it's a little more simplistic for, you know, Gen Pop to use the IR, 
RIR scheme, but without like an experienced trainer or an experienced spotter or somebody there to help you, like besides saying, okay, literally just go until you have one more rep in the tank. What is the, what is the easiest way to explain to somebody how to figure out that one rep max Mm -hmm. or to know that you have one rep in the tank left? You gotta go fail. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause they've done, they do need a spotter. Yeah, some at, of the at the very least. some of the RPE studies show people. I mean, it starts by predicting, uh, you know, and I've used this research study a bunch of times. They've done more than just this one. I know I reference this a lot, but if you've been a long time listener, but it's yeah. just the best one yeah. to to explain what I'm talking about. But they told people to put their ten rep max on a bar, and then they did have a spotter, and they were going to push them to to absolute failure. Um, and they were essentially like, okay, we're going to go for 10 reps, but we're going to spot you. We want you to go to failure because this is your 10 rep max according to what you believe. And uh, I think the lowest rep count was 12. So even mm-hmm. the person who performed the worst still had more than 10 reps. You know what I mean? So I think that it's hard to it's hard for people to, to understand until they fail. So a lot of people have probably left that study and go, man, I'm going to reconsider what my 10 rep max is. Now that I've gone to failure. So I think the best and safest way to do it is – for a bench press, get a spotter, put on something that you think is your 10 rep max, or uh, choose a weight that you're going to do, like your body weight, for example, if you have a good, good bench, and go to failure. Like, n- figure out what it feels like to go to absolute failure. Um, I actually, uh, you filmed it. I actually had to do this for uh, my sports nutrition uh, uh, certification course, and they literally, I had to go to failure on a dumbbell bench press. I had to go to failure on... Uh, a leg extension, and then on the assault bike. So three different types of exercise and different rep ranges with different loads. Um, and it was basically to uh, essentially teach people how to gauge RPE. And I was wrong, <laughs> and I'm pretty experienced. I was, wrong with, um, I was wrong with the assault bike, and I was wrong with the leg extension, but I was pretty damn accurate with the bench press. Um, the leg extension was harder because I don't have a leg, leg extension stack. I have a plate loaded one, which I'm not as used to. And that's with machines. I think you got to get used to the machine over and over again to really be comfortable with what your weight is. Like I've used our lap pull down so many times that I could tell you what my 10 rep max is because I've done it so many times. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and the plate loaded leg extension at the time I didn't, the assault bike, I'm just not as trained metabolic or cardiovascular wise. So I just didn't know how to reach that level of intensity without assuming I was going to puke and being able to like get to that range, you <laughs> yeah. know? Uh, but ultimately people got to go to failure. So put a load on the bar that you feel comfortable with or have a spotter with like it, for deadlifting, for example, do a trap bar deadlift and load it up with your body weight and do as many reps you possibly Much can. Much better than bench press. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously bench press like is one of those ones that you might have to do though, because if you need to understand your percentages and your weights to use for the bench press, you got to do the bench press. So you have somebody spot you, but, um, ultimately it's, it's really just going to failure. So, um, and I would do it with an AMRAP, not a one rep max because it's a different type of failure. Mm. Um, because everybody's tried to lift too much weight and then not everybody, but a lot of people have tried to lift too much weight and you get one grindy, just ugly looking rep, or you have to drop the deadlift. You got an RPE 10, but now we go, Hey, we're going to go lighter. I want you to do it. 10 RPE for eight reps. It's a completely different ball game. Um, it's actually different energy systems, different muscle fiber types are going to be dominating the movement. So it is different, but um, ultimately you got to go to failure to learn what that actually is like. And, and ultimately the thing I've changed my mind on is just how important RPE and RIR are like the proximity to failure. So the distance you are from your last rep, when you finish your last rep, how close you are to failure, that determines more of your results than a lot of programming tactics do. 
programming tactics are going to make sure that you choose the right exercises to stay, uh, to stay safe, to trigger the muscle more. So if, if I feel my triceps more with a rope push down, but you feel it more with a straight bar push down, it's not because like one or the other is better. It's because our mechanics are different. Totally. Our joints are different. Like what is more comfortable to me is different. Um, so exercise selection is important, but that the intensity, the rep ranges you do, the tools you use in the gym, like all of it falls behind effort. And, and if I can teach somebody how to push themselves to the level that is still safe, but close enough to failure that you're stimulating muscle to grow or stimulating your body to change, even from strength, it's the same thing. You have to get to a certain point in relative to your one rep max, 100% of your one rep max uh, usually 80% or more to stimulate the nervous system enough to neurologically develop strength. So yeah. um, typically this is going to be just for, for a take on point RPE seven at least, but usually eight or nine is the sweet spot. 10 every once in a while, if it's a safe movement that you can go all the way to failure because 10 is absolutely fail. Yeah. Um, eight or nine is always a sweet spot, leaving one or two reps in the tank. Um, research shows like leaving one to four reps in the tank, but I usually tell people one to two because I think people underestimate failure. So it's yeah. better to, to aim high and just make sure you're getting close enough. And then with RIR, it's one to two, yeah. one or two reps totally. in the tank. I mean, you're not wanting to go to failure every set. Exactly. Yeah. But if I'm out there doing dumbbell lateral raises with 10 pound dumbbells or 15 pound dumbbells, I can go to failure. Yes. It's not going to, it's not going to do Correct. much. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, I mean, we've seen me do it to the point where I'm laughing because it's like, I can't move my arms yeah. anymore. And it's funny. Yeah. The next day, I think my biceps are kind of sore. It's not that big of a deal. Totally. If I go to failure on deadlifting, like, dude, even on Monday, I mean, you came out, you were like, damn, you're going kind of hard, dude, because mm-hmm. I didn't train in four days. I felt great. Yeah. And it was funny because uh, me and Travis Hunt were talking about yesterday. I didn't read my aura ring in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically don't in the morning because if I read it and it's like, oh, you got bad sleep and your, your HRV score is low, which basically means that you need to like chill out today. Don't go too hard because you're run down. You didn't get enough sleep or you didn't recover well enough it'll get in my head like, oh, shit, I'm going to have a shitty day. So I don't read it in the morning because I don't want to read, did I have poor sleep? Did I, uh, even though I can tell if I had poor sleep, but if it tells me I have like a 60, 60 out of 100 is a horrible score. It'll be in the red and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm going to probably be unproductive from just my mentally thinking about it. So I usually check it at night. There you go. Um, I was going to ask you that. But I didn't check it at all until after I trained and I trained super fucking hard and I read my reading, it was 60 on the dot. And I was like, damn, I had a horrible score. Um, which probably came because I had some wine with my brother when he came over because I hadn't seen him in so long and I slept like shit and, and I still train hard. But yesterday, dude, dude, I feel like garbage yeah. in the gym. It was horrible training sessions. So it kind of carries over, yeah. you know, but that's a good but, example. Like that, I, that day that you did go hard, if you would have read that 60% in the morning, you may have had a negative, you know, mindset about yeah, it. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and what I did and there's pluses and minus that, like I went hard and that's great. But knowing I'm training the rest of the week too, maybe if I like pulled back a little bit, I would have been better yesterday. Totally. You can go either way with it. But, <clears> um, but I also did uh, deadlifts and broad jumps. So heavy load. I was thinking I was doing 375 for sets of three to five. And then broad jumps, explosive movements, both really demanding of your nervous system. Yeah. Um, weighted chin-ups, um, elevated split squats on two plates, front loaded. I did the assault bike then. Like I just did a lot of neurologically demanding things. Yeah. You know, yesterday I did curls and shit like that. So going to failure on a weighted chin up and damn near failure to deadlift stuff is going to wreck you way more than doing RPE 10 on other things. Um, But the whole point is learning how to use the RPE and RIR scale is the big key here. Correct. That I've changed my mind on. Totally. 
All right, let's uh, transition into the next one here. Um, we got one about cardio. This one says, cardio prevents gains or even eats muscle. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this one semi-brief and just kind of break down some of the science behind it. But, like, the overarching theme is, you know, a lot of people talked about how uh, cardio eats your muscle. Like, it, they basically would say, like, oh, you can't do cardio and build muscle because cardio will literally eat your muscle. It'll burn up the muscle, which is just – it's just ludicrous. It's just not true um, unless you go to such far extremes that it's insane. And, the, and, the, and I've used this in a blog, so I'm, I'm guilty of it too. And many – fitness entrepreneurs or trainers or anything that have written blogs past know this there's a picture and we've all used it for content of a marathon runner and a sprinter next to each other and the marathon runner is just fucking jacked and his hamstrings huge chest like he's just a monster and that's a sprinter like olympic sprinter uh you said that was a marathon runner no the other one's a marathon it's a marathon runner and a sprinter next okay. to each other and then the marathon runner is like stick he's just skinny as hell and it's like Cardio versus lifting. You know uh, what I mean? Like explosive work, sprinting, because sprinters run 10, 20, 30 yards, like very short. Sometimes they'll do 50 to 100 yard sprints in practice, but they lift weights. Yeah. They, you know what I mean? They do strength training and sprints. And the marathon runners run long distance. But the truth is, is if you're training, so there's two things here. Number one, if your training is resistance based training, like if you're doing resistance training, then you are going to prevent the ability for cardiovascular training, conditioning, aerobic training to burn up muscle. Cardio would literally have to burn amino acids and uh, muscle fibers in, in protein that is already stored in the muscle in order for that to happen. So number one, it's just not going to happen unless you are extremely depleted in carbohydrates, extremely depleted in fat, extremely depleted in uh, even protein intake um, and you're, you're not resistance training. So if you're doing a merit, if you're running all the time and you're under eating, then absolutely you're going to lose muscle because you're in a calorie deficit. You're not consuming enough fuel or protein in order to recover. And you're not doing any resistance training, which protects your muscle. It's the same reason why when we put somebody through a cut and we're trying to maintain muscle while losing fat, the t two top ways to make sure you maintain muscle are a higher than normal protein intake to make sure you have efficient amino acids coming in the system and strength training because strength training increases muscle protein synthesis, uh, protein intake decreases muscle protein breakdown, and now you have this balance of protecting muscle mass. So if you're strength training and you're worried about cardio eating your muscle away, it's just not going to happen unless you put yourself in a very, very vulnerable position, which most people don't do. You know, a lot of people under eat because they're dieting, but they also eat enough protein and they strength train. You know, so if you're not strength training and you're not eating enough protein and you're under eating calories, carbs, and fats, and you don't have much body fat in your body, your body's not going to eat muscle. It doesn't want to do that. It's going to burn fat. It's going to burn carbs that you're eating. You know what I mean? Um, and even before then, it'll go through gluconeogenesis, which is going to be the process of, of burning protein that you're consuming as fuel. So it, it's very, very unlikely to happen. You need to be going to an extreme in any way in order for it to actually start eating muscle away. Um, it's a wild concept. It is. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, now, there's people who maybe lost muscle tissue during a bodybuilding prep and they were doing a lot of cardio but they were also in a really big deficit and they were doing it for a long period of time and some of it is muscle glycogen you know you're just depleting yourself so you look softer you're losing as much fat as possible and you're starting to lose muscle glycogen so you look weaker um, but losing actual muscle mass is very hard um, the other thing is is making sure that you don't do cardio before 
training. And this is the other thing too. A lot of times it's not that your, your cardio is actually eating muscle away. It's actually that it's preventing new muscle growth. So if you're doing cardio before training or you're just doing too much cardio in general, one of two things is going to happen. Either A, you do cardio before you go and lift and it's going to drop your performance or B, you're doing too much high intensity cardio around your lifting and it's going to fatigue your nervous system. And then you're going to be able to lift poorly. So you're not going to have enough volume to grow. Um, both situations, it's just recovery is, is down and performance is down. Therefore you can't build as much muscle. Mm-hmm. And in a diet, you're not going to retain as much muscle if you can't train hard too. Um, and then the other side of it is if you're doing too much cardio, you're just putting yourself in a deficit. If you're in a deficit, you're probably not going to build any muscle. A bigger deficit than, than what you already are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or if you're somebody, I've had this too, where somebody's trying to build muscle and they're eating at maintenance, what they calculated, or even in a surplus, but they're also doing so much cardio because they're afraid to gain weight, even though that's the point of building muscle. It's contradicting. And now you're putting yourself in a deficit and that's not productive for muscle growth. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Now, the other thing to, to understand is that like, anaerobic training is basically anything. Uh, so aerobic training is cardio. Aerobic training is lower intensity. Anaerobic training is going to be higher intensity. And there's multiple types. There's the aerobic system, the uh, anaerobic system, and the alactic anaerobic system. The alactic anaerobic system and the anaerobic system are the main ones that are going to be dri- diving into um, building muscle, strength training, heavy load, stuff like that. However, uh, the, the anaerobic system in general is what we're going to talk about. And that's basically strength training, right? But the anaerobic training system, the anaerobic energy system is actually limited by your aerobic capacity. So a lot of people don't realize, but you kind of have this threshold, right? So let's say uh, the, the assault bike is a good example of like power output and, and maximum anaerobic ability. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's harder to judge this on a bench press because then we have to go into loads and all that stuff. But it's the same energy system to an extent. And the... The, you have an anaerobic threshold. So let's say my max power output taps out, like I can do 100% of my max wattage and it, I tap out at 10 seconds. Well, if I train the aerobic system, like I can push that, that threshold. So that means I can develop my aerobic system, which fuels the anaerobic system. And that means that 10 second maximum capacity increases to 13, 14, or 15. Mm-hmm. So I added three to five seconds, which doesn't sound crazy, but over time, when I'm doing multiple sets, multiple times a week, that's a lot of extra ATP generation, a lot of anaerobic energy system going on in development, which is going to contribute to strength training and everything. So essentially, your ability uh, to maximize your anaerobic threshold, the amount of time you can produce anaerobic energy and ATP and power and strength is limited by your aerobic ability. So the aerobic system literally generates uh, the majority of your fuel, your ATP, to support the anaerobic system, which means that if you're not doing any cardio, if you're not doing any aerobic training, which doesn't mean, hey, go jog for 40 minutes a day, that is too much. If you're doing conditioning sessions one or tw- once or twice a week, you're going to be slowly improving your aerobic system. If you're walking a lot, if you're doing something one at least two or three times up to a week that is training the aerobic system, you're going to develop your anaerobic system, which is the system used for strength training. So to an extent, as long as you're not doing too much, cardio would actually help you strength train and help you build muscle because it's fueling that. Um, Another thing to consider, aerobic training doesn't just mean like cardio, which cardiovascular health is heart health, right? So a lot of people think, do cardio, healthy heart. It's true, you will. Um, Aerobic training is cardio, kind of technically. Cardio is aerobic building aerobic energy systems. Um, but people forget that the muscles actually have a huge role in aerobic energy development. I mean, they're the ones moving you. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. right? So your heart can go, but if your muscles aren't contributing to the production of aerobic energy and, and fuel and ability to actually execute or perform that exercise, then nothing's happening. Totally. Your heart can go, but if you're not moving, you're not moving. Your muscles yeah. aren't going. So it's not just cardiovascular. It's also a muscular system as well. Um, two more points with this is there's fast twitch and slow twitch fibers. Fast twitch fibers are uh, going to be using anaerobic, anaerobic. Um, and then slow twitch are going to be predominantly using uh, aerobic. So slow twitch is going to be, and this makes sense, slow twitch, aerobic. Aerobic is slower pace. Fast twitch is more anaerobic, but still uses both anaerobic and aerobic, especially because aerobic helps generate fuel for anaerobic because aerobic is the main source of ATP production, which is our, our fuel source for that stuff. Um, this is going to be a lot based on genetics too because your genetic makeup determines the fiber type dominance. That's why some people are just genetic freaks in sports and super explosive and just are naturally jacked. Um, or like... We talked about this with me and Theo. We used to be training partners and we would rotate programs and we'd do a program with like more low reps and like box jumps and sprints and he would just dominate me because he was very fast twitch dominant. He was just genetically born that way. Mm -hmm. He's a great basketball player. That's why he can jump really high and he can be explosive. And then we would do more bodybuilding style stuff where we tap into more slow twitch, higher reps, all that stuff. I would dominate because I was more slow twitch dominant. And you can try to figure out which one you need to develop more, but it's just going to say like, number one, if you're fast twitch, you still got to do aerobic because fast twitch still uses the aerobic system to help. But if you're slow twitch and, or you're trying to develop more slow twitch fibers because your goal is muscle growth and you're doing more bodybuilding style training, higher rep training, then you definitely want to do aerobic because yeah. the slow twitch fibers predominantly use aerobic fuel. So again, leading to not less gains, but more muscle growth. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, better cardio is going to lead to better oxygen supply to the actual muscle, whether you're type one, type two, anaerobic, aerobic training doesn't matter. Um, and if you have better or more fuel to the muscle, oxygen to the muscle, AP, uh, ATP production, you're going to train harder. You're going to train better. You're going to do more volume. You're going to grow more. You're going to have better success in the gym. So um, at the end of the day, like the whole thought process is, is that cardio is not going to be detrimental to your training it's not going to eat your muscle it's not going to cause you to have less gains unless you just are not being intelligent about it so if you're doing hard cardio before you train of course that's not good if you're doing more cardio than what is necessary and it's, it's taking away your ability to recover from training of course that's not going to be good um, if you're doing a ton of cardio and not as much training or equal amount of training but you're doing a ton of cardio and you're not eating enough uh, protein or calories, of course, you're probably going to lose muscle. It's not going to be good. But most of the situations that cause this are situations where people just, it's not realistic. You know, people aren't listening to this and they're doing six hours of cardio per week and six hours of strength training per wow. week and under eating. Like, yeah. that's not going to happen. So um, cardio is not the devil. Cardio is not going to hurt you. Um, aerobic training is actually super, super beneficial. You don't need to do a ton, but you should definitely be doing some because as I just broke down in from multiple different reasons. It's, it's super, super productive to long-term success in the gym, whether your goal is performance or strength, or you want to build muscle and actually change your body composition for the better. Um, even if you're trying to get leaner, because your goal is to preserve muscle, you still want to be able to fuel those muscles better. And that means you're going to want to have some, uh, aerobic capacity, aerobic ability in nature. Yeah. So. Totally good. Good breakdown. Um, we will move on to the next one. It says mesocycles cannot be flexible. So a mesocycle is basically like a block of training. So this would be, you know, if you have a macro cycle, you might have a year of training. You might have, I mean, even that 
can be flexible. Um, even a microcycle can be flexible. So really the whole point is a timeline of training can be flexible as can the, the, the exercises within it essentially. Um, and what, what I mean by this is realistically, like there was a, a time where it was almost like mesocycles are four weeks. Most people just believe this mesocycles were four weeks. You programmed a four week block, um, and you were in a 12 or 16 week program, right? And you trained all year. It was just like, okay, here's a three month program and it has three, four week blocks, but there's no reason why mesocycles can't be two weeks. There's no reason why mesocycles can't be three weeks. There's no reason why they can't be six weeks. I have clients that are all of the above. I have some clients that are two, some that are three, some that are four. I have some that are six. I have one that is has always been six and he loves six, but we're moving him to five so that we can f- have deloads more frequently because he's dieting and so his diet fatigue is increasing. So there's there's just different scenarios. And the same applies for exercise selection. You know, like uh, within a mesocycle, it was kind of like, okay, and this is where there's more flexibility too. I can have a four-week mesocycle, but I can have uh, variations of exercises within the four weeks. So I might have my compound lifts go for four weeks, and that's my mesocycle. But my accessory work might change every one or two weeks because I want to rotate through movements and be more flexible to keep the person engaged. And there was a cool study that showed pretty equivocal results of instead of being you have to do one-arm dumbbell row for eight reps, it was unilateral horizontal row. So if you use a cable or a kettlebell or a dumbbell or whatever, it doesn't matter as long as you hit the RPE needed and you hit the the rep range, the volume needed. So as long as I'm pushing myself to the same RPE and I'm using eight reps in a unilateral rowing fashion targeting the same muscle, it doesn't matter what equipment I use or anything. So you you have more freedom to change things. Not as much with the compound lifts because those are going to be more specific, which we'll get to in a sec. But um, the point is, is you can have more flexibility inside of your mesocycles and microcycles to have more fun. And this applies with microcycles too. Microcycle would be a week. So if I have a four-week mesocycle, four-week program, that means I have four microcycles. There's four one-week programs or one-week training sessions, right? A schedule of, of one full week in there. But there's times where you might want to have a three-day mesocycle or microcycle. And there's also times where you'd want to have a 10-day microcycle because maybe we want to do a push-pull leg split. This is a good example. Um, instead of having a, cause most people think a microcycle is one week of training, which means it's a seven day calendar week. But if I have a program that is, um, maybe it's six days cause it's five days on one day off, which means day one is Monday and then day five is Friday, rest day Saturday. But next week, day one is Sunday and then day five is Thursday. So it's rotating. Um, you can do this with a push pull leg. So people, this is an eight, eight day microcycle push, pull, legs, rest, push, pull, legs, rest, instead of push, pull, legs, push, pull, legs, rest. So instead of it being a seven-day calendar week, it's an eight-day training week or a five-day training week. So there's the, the point of this thing that my thoughts have changed since the start of, of programming is, is really just the fact that programming in general doesn't need to be stapled or tied down to any black and white answers is really the, the general theme here, right? You don't need to have a four-week mar- mesocycle. You don't need to only have a seven day microcycle. Um, you can rotate things in so many different ways. Um, as long as the scientific principles of training are in place. So if you're doing the right exercises with the right volume, with the right intensity and effort, um, and you're recovering properly, it doesn't matter, right? It really doesn't matter what the days or the weeks, uh, from a timeline perspective are, as long as you're progressing. So if we align the principles of scientific strength training and you are progressing week to week, month to month, then it doesn't matter, you know? So, um, yeah. And, and the big thing there too is like mesocycles once upon a time were 
four weeks because people want a, a monthly membership with their coach, you know, and they still are. So to an extent, a lot of people still do it because it's like, oh, your payment goes through, you get another program, totally. you know, and, and I get that, but that's why we create, uh, we, we use, I mean, Box. just three to six month commitments with people, but we also build relationships to where there's trust. And so we can have an honest conversation of like, I know you're staying for a certain period of time and I'm going to do what's best for you. Instead of saying, I'm only doing four weeks because I want to make sure you pay me before I give you another program. If I think two weeks is best for you, we're going to do two weeks. If I think it's three weeks, it's going to be three weeks, you know, because there's trust with yeah. the client. Um, well, yeah. Different factors and variables that go into that. Yeah. And I mean, I would even say that just flexibility <clears throat> and training is, yeah. is, is okay compared to what I used to think. It just had to be so written in stone. So whatever the paper said, you got to fucking do, you know, it depends. Yeah, it depends. Oh yeah, man. All right, cool. Uh, that was good. We'll go to the next one. It says compound. I can't read your handwriting. Lifts. Oh my god. <laughs> compound lifts are king. Yeah, king. Like they're they trump. They trump all. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're like, and I think people over glorify them, and that's where I'm like, at. like when you first start strength training, it's almost like oh, bench squat, deadlift, overhead press. You have to do that, and then you'd get people who would be in pain pressing or you'd get people who couldn't deadlift without low back issues or you get people have poor mobility or weak strength in certain ranges and you still just make them do it because well the 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 holy grail of strength training the bible of strength training says you need to do the compound lifts right that's just i mean it's just what you got to do and it's like the more and more i train the the less i believe that i even had a conversation with somebody recently it was like they train five in the morning by themselves and it's like man i love the compound lifts but i'm afraid to lift heavy enough with squat and bench because I don't have a spotter and I want to push myself. And I was like, dope, do you have a Smith machine? Well, yeah, but Smith machine, dope. You should use that because there's hooks. And if you're going to fail, you can just rack it. Now, do I like a barbell back squat with a free bar better than a Smith machine? Of course, but you're doing a squat. So if you can get in a comfortable position under a Smith machine, your body doesn't know it's a Smith machine. Your mind does, but that doesn't matter. Your body knows I'm pushing it. And this is why I always say muscles are dumb. They just know tension. Correct. So... If we're trying to build muscle or maintain muscle during uh, phallus or even build strength, you can adjust exercises away from the compound lifts and focus on key indicator exercises. And this is what I've been way more about or metric-based lifts. And essentially what this means is, you know, barbell bench press is great. You should progress that. Why not a dumbbell bench press? Like, yeah, barbell bench press for your one rep max or three rep max is very common. Why not dumbbell bench press for your eight rep max? Why not? a lap pull-down machine, right? What feels best to you? So the point with this is compound lifts are great. Don't worry about like that. Like I I 100% believe that. But I also believe that movement is good and progression is better. So if you cannot safely progress in the compound lifts, if you don't have the mobility requirements, if they are uh, constantly causing injuries because you're not ready to do those, or maybe you just, you're beaten up from years of training. And so some things just feel wonky. That's why I trap our deadlift 10 times more than I barbell deadlift because I'm way less likely to get injured. And at this point, I'd just rather not get injured and I'd rather progress. So my body doesn't go, oh, fuck, this is a trap bar. He's not going to build as much. It goes, he's lifting heavy shit off the floor. Deadlift. That's what that is, you know? Um, I can track my progress on that lift, right? If I don't really feel my quads much in a split squat, but I really feel my quads on a front squat or I really feel them on a leg press or I really feel them on a leg extension, that's your key indicator lift. The point is, is instead of glorifying compound lifts, unless you're a power lifter or you want to be, because if you're a power lifter, you got to do them because that's what you're being judged and scored on. If you're an Olympic lifter, you got to do the Olympic lifts because that's what the sport is. Um, it's like if you're playing soccer, but you're like, ah, I don't want to kick a ball. Well, 
you have to. That's <laughs> yeah. what you're. That's what the sport's based on. Yeah. Um, but for anything else of training, you should do things that are going to stimulate your muscle well, keep you safe, and and really show you progress over time. So, and I've talked about the dumbbell bench press a lot because that's one of my favorite. But you know, for me, if I go through it, I'm like, okay, I like the Bulgarian split squat, the dumbbell bench press, uh, the uh, close grip seated cable row, um, and maybe a trap bar deadlift, right? Those are my key indicator lifts and I'm, I'm hitting all of them or maybe there's a, uh, this actually is one, dumbbell seated military press. I'm trying to progress those movements month to month, mesocycle to mesocycle in any rep range, whether that's six reps or eight reps or 10 reps, whatever I'm usually doing with them, am I adding load or getting better at those movements over time? I don't care that they're not barbell compound movements. Really? Am I progressing? So a lot of people kind of forget about all these other lifts that they feel good doing um, like for example, I feel my shoulders more on a dumbbell seated military press than any other shoulder movement. Like I just know my shoulders build best those I'm going to spend way more time and focus building that than I am a barbell standing overhead press. Not because that movement's not great, but for me, this one's better. And the point of a compound lift for anything aside from powerlifting as a sport is to be able to track your progress over time. That's why they're the compound lifts. They're big motor movements that you know are going to work a good amount of muscles and they're going to isolate specific muscles and you can add weight to them over time. Totally. But it doesn't mean that you can't add weight to all the other ones over time, right? So uh, point being with this one is simple. Comp I, I used to believe compound lifts are king. I think a lot of people still do. They glorify them. They put them on a pedestal. And although I think they're great and they are in the majority of my programs, there's plenty of times with individual clients where I adjust away from them. And there's plenty of times with every client in the training, Taylor trainer app, everything where I'm really just focused on making sure people are progressing on movements, period. Yeah. So whether it's an RDL or a deadlift or a front squat or a back squat or a leg press or a leg extension or anything, you know, not isolation work necessarily, but movements that you can progress. Those are key indicator lifts and you should always have multiple handfuls of those versus just focusing on the big three. Yeah. So I love it. You can do all, all those in multiple ways. Yeah. All right, cool. We are, Got one more here, guys. Uh, it says small muscle groups don't need direct isolation work. This was a thing for a long time where it was like, if, if you're doing the big compound movements and there would be these full body uh, programs that would basically be like, you go in the gym and you do like a bench press, a deadlift, uh, a weighted chin up, and that's it, right? Or like, and then the next day it was like a back squat and overhead press and a T-bar row. And it was like, just like a couple big movements, compound movements, right? Full body. You didn't need to do curls. You didn't need to do glute kickbacks. You didn't need to do hip thrusts. You didn't need to do lateral raises. You didn't need to do any of that because all of your secondary muscle groups will just grow from the compound lifts, right? It's the same thing with like, you don't need to do any sit-ups or ab work because your abs are going to be developed from deadlifting. And I fell victim to that actually. When I did my show, that was like the biggest disappointment to me. I got shredded, but like my abs just did not pop out enough for my physique to be as impressive as it could be. Mm. Um, and it was because I never did abs because I believe I was like, well, I'm doing all the big compound lifts. I don't need to train my abs. And I don't generally enjoy training abs. Like I do it now just because I want the result, but I don't have fun training mm. abs. Some people love it. I just don't. But um, I'm not going to develop hypertrophy in my abs. They're not going to pop out more or be more visible unless... I directly train them, yeah. right? My arms aren't going to grow bigger if I don't directly train them. So I can't just do chin-ups or just do deadlifts, just do bench press and expect my triceps and biceps to be huge, right? I need to actually directly isolate them. Same thing with, um, you know, there's people who just, you know, if you squat and deadlift, you'll, you'll grow your glutes. No, I've trained so many women over the years, all of them squat and deadlift, but the ones that want bigger glutes, 
I'm doing hip abductions. I'm doing kickbacks. I'm doing quadruped uh, raises. I'm doing hip, hip thrusts thrust a ton. Yeah. Glute ham raises. I'm doing a lot of those things, and they always have better development of the glutes. And I also up the frequency. So I'm isolating them purposely, and that's how you grow. It's, and, I mean, it's, it's common sense. You direct stimulus and stress to a muscle they're going to grow more. Yeah. I think what happens a lot of times and people believe this is there's certain people that are just obsessed with compound lifts. And there's also certain people that get into training just doing those because yeah. that's the main thing you start with is like, well, let me figure you out squat the, all day. Yeah. Let me figure out the big, <clears throat> big movements and do those. And when you're brand new to lifting, you get more bang for your buck. So you do grow everywhere from just doing bench squat deadlift. Like I literally, I remember training and literally just basically doing bench squat deadlift overhead press and chin ups. And then, farmers carries and shit like that i built a lot of muscle but i was brand new i was 19 and i just started training a year ago so like yeah i'm gonna grow a lot by doing whatever because i'm young filled with testosterone and i have never trained a day in my life so you're gonna grow and then i could have continued going on the path of like this is all you need to do basic full body training you know big lifts will grow everything it's just not the case i've trained enough people now focusing on specific body parts and body composition changes that isolation is is key you need it there's a reason why bodybuilders who have the biggest muscles across their entire body are doing all these isolation exercises and even if you don't want to look like a bodybuilder if you want to enhance any one muscle you're gonna have to isolate it right um this is why also like if you look at like professional crossfitters who are super jacked a lot of them are uh disproportionately big so they'll have really big traps and maybe not huge delts right or lats why because they're doing a ton of cleans and snatches and carries it's all trap dominant. Um, so a lot of them have huge quads. Maybe they don't have huge hamstrings. Now in CrossFit, they do a lot of sprinting and a lot of uh, other stuff like that. So they will develop more hamstrings. But for a while, they would just be huge quads. because They're doing clean and squats all day, every day. Yeah. You know, walking lunges, ton of quad dominant stuff. So the more you train something, the more it's going to grow. But if you don't isolate other, uh, other muscle groups in your body, you're just not going to grow those as much. You're not going to have balance across your physique. Just plain and simple. And it seems very obvious, but there is a thing in the industry for a long time that it was just like, you don't have to do isolation work if you're doing these big compound lifts, yeah. these big movements. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm just shitting on compound lifts this episode, but um, I think uh, somebody who is more well-versed in program design and, and exercise anatomy knows that there's so many amazing exercises and so many amazing movement patterns that you should be doing to truly develop your physique and your training and your performance to the greatest level All versus right. just doing a few things. Yeah. All around. Yeah. I don't care if they have a big bang for your buck. doesn't mean you shouldn't do the other little things. You should do those and the little things. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's a wrap. Dope. That's yeah, it. that's all of them. All right, guys. So there's uh, part two of training opinions. I know, man, the first one got a lot of good feedback. So Yeah. Same with the nutrition ones. I like yeah. doing these ones, deep, debunking myths and stuff like that is always fun. Um, do me a favor, guys. Make sure you you uh, obviously leave us a five-star rating review. Take a screenshot of this show. Share it on your story. Share it with a friend. Send it in an email. Send it via text. I don't care what you do. Just spread the message. This is free, and we want to get more people listening. Um, and last but not least, click the link in the description to check out the free guide as well as the Q&A box. You can ask us any question, give us any topic, whatever you want to do, and we'll bring it up in the show, and we'll answer your questions personally. Thank you.